Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about The Outsiders, which is S.E. Hinton's 1967 YA novel about a group of greasers in 1960s Oklahoma and also class warfare. So Tristan, why The Outsiders? Okay, so I'm going to take you guys on a little journey. Bear, bear with me. <laughs> we love a journey. <laughs> So in, in 1998, uh, which incidentally is the 20th anniversary of when the film version of the musical Grease came out, and m- more on that in a minute, uh, I was a chorus member in our high school's production of Grease, the musical. Um, and, and, and I did this, of course, if, you, if you're wondering why, because I, I was a, a big old dork, uh, and hence my friends were all also other dorks. And they all wanted to be in this. And I, who have never before or since wanted to be in a musical, uh, did not want to be left, as it were, an outsider. See, so there's there's two tie-ins with the, the greasers and the you know the outsider thing. So social isolation. Wow. But they want to be <laughs> okay. I'm gonna go with you. I'm on uh, a journey. But there was a problem. Because over the course of this debacle, I found that I was the only dork who was really not into this shit at all. The other dorks in the musical went out to see the revival of the film, for instance, dressed up in their costumes from the musical. Uh, and I can only imagine because I you know, did not go. I was apparently too cool for that. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, that's, that's the fucking line right there. <laughs> that's the line right there. Uh, and I can only assume that when they went to the theater, they were freaking the living shit out of the various farm folk and goth kids and skater punks and other manner of folksy Delawareana uh, who were just trying to see the the moving pictures at the old Nickelodeon. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, this made me realize that sometimes being an outsider really ain't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Better than going to see the revival of Greece in the movie theater. Dressed up. That's really the, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. Thing. Yeah. No, I mean, seriously, I wanted to read this for two reasons. Uh, I knew almost nothing about it. And Megan said that I should. And, and I, I, I trust what Megan tells me about 20th century fiction. And I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I am also really interested in the setting, um, which is never quite stated. But yeah, I basically assumed to be Tulsa. And, and, and like one reason is because I always associated greasers with coastal cities and big cities in the upper Midwest. And I thought it was interesting to see how that cultural form worked in this very different setting. And also, I love dunking on Brad Pack movies. Uh, which I mean, I think Megan will talk about um, while secretly loving them. And I am embarrassed to say that I had not seen the 1983 Outsiders film, uh, although I did that as well for, for this episode. So good. <laughs> I love it more than my own child. <laughs> uh, okay, so I wanted to read this because I have read it approximately 31 times. Um, it was one of those books in middle school that I read over and over again, and I love, I love it. And it's so this is like good ass teen melodrama, which is a genre that is still going strong, and I still love it, even though I think Riverdale has kind of gone off. Um, I I know what that <laughs> is totally. <laughs> people people at our office will say Riverdale and I'm like, oh, River Dance. Right. Yeah, got it. We're, we're on the same, we're on the same wavelength. It's a show on the Netflix. This is not some like underground I, programming. I, I believe you. I do. Listen, there are redheads in both Riverdale and River Dance. So you're on to something. That's true. It's like mostly wall to wall gingers. But like we know how I feel about don't trust redheads. <laughs> <laughs> well, then Riverdale's got to be a very scary experience for you. 
<laughs> I don't trust that motherfucker. It's like, no, it's fine. The, they're not trustworthy redheads on that show. You don't trust Archibald, whatever his last name is? Uh, well, I trusted his R.I.P. father. Um, Luke Perry. Luke Perry, R.I.P. Uh, okay, anyway, so I like that. I like that show. But it's it's fallen off. Anyway, so I also really like the movie of, uh, it's not called The Greasers, it's called The Outsiders. It's so good. And it's uh, very much from 1983. You could probably tell that as soon as you started watching it. I also like Greaser and like Boy Gang and homosocial fictions a lot, especially from the 50s and 60s. And the cover of my, cop- my new copy of The Outsiders, which P.S. is Deckle edged <laughs> platinum, <laughs> platinum, new platinum edition, which says on the back, with all the allure and durability of platinum itself, these are stories <laughs> that will captivate readers in editions that they will cherish for years to come. <laughs> and uh, my previous copy that I got rid of is a 1983 movie tie-in. So this book has clearly gone up the uh, the literary merit charts. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it looks the cover looks a lot like The Leather Boys, which is this movie, and it's a pulp novel from 1961, and its publisher referred to it as Romeo and Romeo in the South London suburbs. It's lovely. Uh, so it's a whole tradition. It's something I really like about the outsiders. Uh, this is true of the Leather Boys too. Is that like mere rebellion, like rebel without a cause thing, isn't the point? Social bonds are the point. And we see the socias in the outsiders. They mark social inequality and the monstrousness of the wealthy. But the boys in our gang aren't there just to be counter bourgeois. They're not symbolic in the way that other rebels sometimes are. So I find that really interesting. And I very strongly want to talk about YA fiction because we haven't yet and how that genre emerges and continues to shift. Uh, okay, so that's my story. So Katie, why did you want to read it? must be a rereading for you too. It is a rereading for me. Uh, I too can cut diamonds with my copy of The Outsiders for sure, just like yours, Megan. Um <laughs> So no worries about that. It's very precious. Uh, it's is as valuable to me as platinum. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's uh it's a hundred percent more flammable, which makes it cooler. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just to sort of uh to connect this the many threads of our interest here i too i have i have read this like megan uh i love it and also like tristan it has to do with um uh, me taking a time machine back to childhood to return to a simpler time it's really the thing about this book is it is what i thought the musical grease was as a child just sort of like a little harmless fun involving uh roughhousing boys who love friendship and and their feelings and fast cars and their hair. And Grease turned out to be a wildly perverse cautionary tale about why you should never fuck John Travolta or anyone no. named Kinnicky. Yep. No. Yep. Don't do that. Yeah, it was a it was a darker journey than than this was. Grease, I saw approximately eleven hundred thousand times yep. and nothing. Yep. <laughs> there is nothing in life before or since that has, to me, equaled the bitter disappointment that was Greece 2. 
Oh, it's yeah. a mess. Oh. I, I I never no. I, <laughs> it depends. I mean, if you have enough, there may not be enough weed in the world to make it worth it. Grease one cured me of my desire for more. Yeah, yeah, you're perfectly fine. <laughs> well, well, unlike unlike Tristan, who had his fill after Grease one, I approached it with great excitement because I thought that there would just be. I thought it would just be more. There'd be more cosmetology school. There'd be more unplanned pregnancy. There'd be more finger blasting in the back of some <laughs> undetermined vehicle. Uh, it's the type of thing that you, you come to expect out of your musicals when you're seven. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but this this is actually so this is sort of to me, it's like the prequel to Greece. It's also my Greece too. It's my first, my last, my everything. And so this is a more innocent, it's sort of a more innocent thing. It takes me back to to a real simple time. Unlike that, what transpired after I watched Greece, you see, uh, several years later, when the film Boogie Nights came out, I was a wiser person. And so I and, and I knew to expect that it would be about a honking big dick guy and not <laughs> a fun time at a roller rink. Mm-hmm. You've, learned, you've learned some lessons. <laughs> yeah. I've learned I've learned many lessons. And uh, I just want to say that. Boogie Nights nearly killed me because I refused to watch it on principle. I don't remember what the principle was. It involved something about how my friend was a weird freak and a pervert. Um, she wanted to watch it at a sleepover. And I commenced uh, to zip myself into the top of my sleeping bag. And it remained... <laughs> I didn't know that you could do I didn't know you could zip it. I didn't know you could zip it at the top. And so what may have happened is either I had a very uh a suffocation encouraged sleeping bag or I simply dove in sort of head where the feet should be. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I think that that really that really corrupted and jaded me in in a lot of ways and I feel like the Outsiders is where I should have gone, not to not to Dirk Diggler, but to <laughs> a wholesome occasion where where boys knife each other and do murders um, and mm-hmm. are really hot for their brothers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's yeah, it's a, American is apple pie. All, all of that. That's yeah. right. That you gotta fuck the pie. <laughs> this is a great book. Oh, it's so good. So today we are going to be talking about childhood genre in terms of YA and books about teenagers. We're going to talk about violence, masculinity, and class inequality. Okay. To summarize this novel, The Outsiders came out in 1967, and it was one of the first official YA novels as we sort of know the genre now. Its narrator is the greaser Ponyboy Curtis who is 14 and lives in what we don't actually know as Tulsa, but people assume is Tulsa because that's where Essie Hinton lived. Ponyboy lives with his brothers, Soda Pop, who is an Oklahoma 10, but I think actually like a real 10, like an LA 10. Well, he's um, Rob Lowe, right? He's so. Rob Lowe, right? So he's a total, <laughs> he's both a total dime and a horrible person. And a libertarian. Yeah, right. Horrible person. You already said, I, I yeah, repeated already you. said it. Yeah. Uh, and his brother Daryl, who they call Derry, who used to play football. So looks wise, that's like between you and your preferences. You know, football players aren't my usual bag, but they're for somebody. They have butts. <laughs> they well, you know what? Now I should revisit my point of view. I guess they do have butts. 
They have and tight the, ends. And this <laughs> they have tight ends. That's right. And this one is Patrick Swayze, right? So yeah, but that's like that's a little uh, I don't know, it's more sinewy than my usual <laughs> my usual vibe. <laughs> Are you eating these men, Megan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little gristly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, answer is yes. So the three of them have lived together since their parents died seven months before. Pony Boy is a first year, first year in high school freshman, I guess I would say. Uh, Soda Pop has dropped out and is working in a gas station, and Derry is a roofer. Pony Boy thinks that Derry hates him because he's very, very strict. And Soda, who is Pony Boy's favorite person and genuinely sweet and very dishy, tells him that in fact Derry loves him and that's why he is so strict. So the novel begins with Pony Boy walking home from a movie and getting jumped by a group of socias who are the rich kids. They have fancy cars and stupid madras jackets. But before he's seriously hurt, his brothers and their friends find him and chase off the socias. So their buddies are Steve, who is like it's like some guy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, yes. He doesn't have a cool name. So. No, he Fuck doesn't. Yeah. And, and I love that in the movie he is Tom Cruise because this is before Tom Cruise, you know, got big. And it's great to see a movie where Tom Cruise is in it, but like is just completely ignored. Yeah, I enjoy. He's it. like yeah. at best, a, he's like a tertiary <laughs> character. Like there are yeah, secondary yeah. characters, and then there's Tom Cruise. Exactly. Um, and be- <laughs> before, what is that? An actually, very good nose job, but certainly a nose job. <laughs> Steve is like a dick to Pony Boy, and that's his character. That's the uh, that's what we know. And then his their friend Tubit, who's the comic relief, and actually like written. I think he's pretty funny and you know quick to throw down, which we love uh, in a care in a man in this this book. And then there's Dallas, who they call Dally, who is harder and tougher than the other guys. He grew up in New York and gets into a lot of fights and gets thrown in jail a lot. Ponyboy distinguishes between greasers and hoods, and he says that that fine line does not exist in Dally. And then we have our sweet and tragic Johnny Cade, who is in this movie not played by Sal Mineo, but by Ralph Macchio, because Italian-Americans are good at sad, I guess. <laughs> and he, Johnny, has been recently jumped by this group of socials who like beat the shit out of him, so he's very jumpy and... These are our dudes, and yes, this is how S.E. Hinton does it too. She just she lays them out. They have eye colors that we can that we can tag to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most of like it. a like a romance novel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the night after Ponyboy gets jumped, he, Dally, and Johnny go to a drive-in movie, but they they walk into it, so it's like a walk-in. They meet these two social girls, Marsha and Cherry. Dally, of course, gives them like a ton of shit and cherry tells him to fuck off and then she throws a coke in his face which is pretty great and then he fucks off so cherry and pony boy then go to buy some popcorn he tells her about how they found johnny after the socials worked him over and she says we're not all like that and things are rough all over which is like fuck this like that's it's yeah, that's a that's a that's a very rich person thing to say, it right? Is. Like, <laughs> we can have it bad. We all have problems. Yeah. So they all leave, and then they're confronted by a car full of socias. It has Marsha's and Cherry's dickhead boyfriends in it. They leave with them, and then Cherry, who we all I knew was a bitch from the beginning, tells Pony Boy not to be offended if she pretends like she doesn't know him if they see each other at school. 
which is bullshit. And then, so Pony Boy and Johnny go out to lie in this vacant lot near their houses. They fall asleep. Pony Boy wakes up. He goes home. Derry is so pissed at him that he's late that he like smacks him. And Pony runs out of the house. He finds Johnny asleep in the park, the lot. And so they walk to this nearby park to cool, cool off, cool their heads. So they're in this park. They're just talking. And then this blue Mustang full of hammered Soch pieces of shit finds them. And of course, they just like immediately attack them. And again, like Pony Boy is 14 and mm-hmm. they're both like young, skinny dudes. And these Soches are like seniors in high school and there's five of them. Yeah, it, right. And, and it is like, I, I mean, <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm afraid of getting a black eye. It's like, no, no, like you are afraid they're going to be murdered. Like that's, yeah. you know, yeah. Or like they're going to beat the shit out of them. Like he's, they, they threatened Pony in the first scene with a fucking knife. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I did, and I also did like that the dickheads in this are, are like, they're, are, they're rich kids. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> like, for I sure. Thought, yeah, I yeah, thought yeah, that yeah. was great. Like, yeah. It's awesome. But so like. They attack these two kids and then they literally try to drown Pony Boy in a fountain. Awesome. And so he blacks out because he's being drowned. And then when he comes to, Johnny is sitting on the ground and he says, I killed that boy. And indeed, he has stabbed the most dickish Soch. So they decide that they got to run. And Johnny tells Pony Boy, we'll need money. And maybe a gun and a plan. And this is like an amazing and utterly astonishing scene. If you've never read it or seen the movie, it's just like, yeah, it hits you hard, I think. It's enormously shocking. Yeah, it's a teenage, it's a novel for teenagers. Mm-hmm. So they need they need money and a gun. And who but our toughest hood friend to supply these? So they find Dally, who gives them a gun, 50 bucks, and tells them to hop a train to this abandoned church in the country. Johnny and Ponyboy cut out of town. They cut their hair, which is a personal tragedy for both of them. <laughs> and they hole up in this church, smoking, playing cards, and reading aloud to each other from Gone with the Wind, which is this like <laughs> very odd choice. And I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I had the exact same reaction to it. And all I could think is it sh- now like, <laughs> you don't have to be like a leftist anti-racist to get how fucked up Gone with the Wind is. But like yeah. in, in mid 20th century America, white America is like, oh, what? it's like like uh, Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. It's fun. And so I just think that I'm imagining like teenage S.E. Hinton writing this and just thinking like, what's like an adult book I can give him? I know Gone with oh, the Wind. You know what I right. mean? Like, yeah. yeah. And you could get it at a grocery store. That's the other yeah. thing, too, is like yes. the only goes. Yeah to a grocery store yeah yeah but it is it is an extremely fucked up and weird object right like yeah it's a weird book and it's like not exactly you know oh they're gonna really relate to this you know but yet they (laughs) fucking johnny relates to it in the worst way possible right that like the noble southern gentleman yeah yeah he's he's like they sure had manners (laughs) 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 pretty weird but yeah, so that's what they do, and I don't know what to do with it. So they're then they're they're holding up in this church, and there's this famous scene where Pony Boy wakes up to watch the sunrise, and then Johnny sort of finds him watching the sunrise, and Pony Boy recites 
the Robert Frost poem, Nothing Gold Can Stay, because even though he's a greaser, he can memorize poetry. And this will help him a lot when he takes his doctoral exams. Yep. Or the GRE2. <laughs> yeah. The subject test. Or yeah. the GRE2. But it's really uh, good yes. to have memorized shit for your comps. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because then they're like, oh, you really read it. <laughs> then you can get away with not reading anything if you just memorize a couple lines. Uh, not that I did anything like that. <laughs> well, they can't take your degree away now. <laughs> Admit what you want. So on their fifth day in hiding, Dally shows up and Johnny tells Dally and Ponyboy that they need to return to Tulsa and turn themselves in. But when they go back to the church to get their stuff, the church is on fire and there are a bunch of little kids who are playing in there and they're trapped. And the three of them run into the church to rescue the little kids because this is like gone with the wind <laughs> thing. There's a fire in that book, and the book caught fire, yes. and that's what happened. Yes. Sher Sherman burned the church in the outsiders. That's yep. what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly fine with it. Yeah. So just go with that. That's our connection. So they go in, and they save little kids, and then Dally knocks out Ponyboy accidentally, and yet again, he comes to change of scenery, doo-doo-doo-doo, and he comes. <laughs> uh, but when he does, he's in an ambulance, and they're taking him to the hospital. The hospital, they release Ponyboy and he is reunited with his brothers and Derry is all fucked up over Ponyboy and crying. And then we realize that he does love him after all. Uh, there's nothing like your kid brother being gone forever for five days to make <laughs> you realize that, I suppose. But both Dally and Johnny are still in the hospital. Dally has these bad burns, but Johnny has a broken back and he's badly burned and we are not sure that he'll recover. But it also turns out, lo and behold, all three of them are heroes because they saved all these little kids and they're all over the newspapers. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so once the bros get home, they tell Ponyboy that we're going to have a rumble. They call it that. <laughs> I didn't make it up. They, yeah. They call it a they call it a skin rumble, Megan. <laughs> oh, they do call it a skin rumble because ain't no weapons, just just skin. That's right. Yep. It's uh, manly yeah. not to use the, all the funny weapons they reference. Yeah. Hemingway rules, slaps it. only. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, That's Hemingway right. rules. <laughs> uh, no dicks allowed. No dicks allowed. Just slaps and, and tears. Yep. So we're going to go to a rumble, and the socials are going to fight the greasers in a West Side Story moment, but it's, it's not racist and there's no dancing. Oh, man, you just fucking nailed it right there. <laughs> you do like musicals. <laughs> Don't say that you, out loud. You just did a, <laughs> did a full Russ Tamblin bit. Yeah, we have this on tape. Seven brides for seven brothers over here. <laughs> so, Tubit and Ponyboy... They go to the hospital to visit the boys to tell them there's going to be a rumble. But when they see Johnny, he is declining. Uh, he tells Ponyboy, I don't want to die now. It ain't long enough. 16 years ain't long enough. And it is such a fucked up scene. It's another one of those scenes that you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, you're going to kill another kid. And then we see Dally as well. He talks to bit into giving him his switchblade and says, we got to get even with the socials for Johnny. <laughs> and this is the scene in the movie. And 
fucking Matt Dillon slaughters it to death. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. And Matt, I just want to say my vote, Matt Dillon, best of the Dillon brothers, very far superior to Kevin Dillon. And now it's barely I'm, as though he barely exists. I'm sorry, but I know, but I can't look. I told you this. I look at Matt Dillon and I think Kevin Dillon and then I think Entourage and I get mad. So, you know, it's not his fault, oh. though, right? <laughs> no, Matt Dillon's in some good movies. He's also at Rumblefish, which is uh, another S.E. Hinton. Oh, no shit. Mm-hmm. What good. did we think about Jacob Dillon? One headlight, anyone? Is he somebody's brother? I thought he was just somebody's fail son. Yeah, he's just Bob Dylan's fail, which, oh my Su- God. Success son, Su- hello. <laughs> have, you heard, have you heard the Wallflowers hit one headlight? I, I, Isn't that another 20-year-old reference? <laughs> it, it's, I, I lived through 1998. Yes, I, I have heard that song. <laughs> it is, it's the second time 1998 has come up today. Yeah. Well, we know when I peaked, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so Matt Dylan's still here. He's doing great work. It's really good. So the greasers, of course, beat the Sochas in the rumble. And afterward, Dally drags Pony Boy to the hospital because they're going to tell Johnny and really feeling good about it. But Johnny says that fighting's no good and it's useless. And then he tells Pony Boy, stay gold before he dies. And I cry about it like a big ass baby. (laughs) And we kill another kid amazing 16 year old kid what the fuck this book uh so we know you know that dallas winston ever the uh hood we know this will finally break him so he robs a grocery store and then when he's running from the cops they fucking shoot him down and kill him and pony boy tells us dally didn't die a hero he died violent and young and desperate just like we all knew he'd die someday Yes, and, and I appreciate the A cab message too here. That's uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I think yes, yeah, yes. That's you know how do kids get killed? Well, heroism, socias, or cops. Yep, yep. So as this gun battle is going on, which we see from Pony Boy's first person, he drops. He passes out because he's sick and half starved and concussed from this rumble, and. 14 years old. 14 years old. Let's just, I'm just reviewing that. So I'm starting to think that, as much as I love this book, fainting is S.E. Hinton's way of getting from one setting to the next. This is his third blackout in this book. So when Ponyboy wakes up, he's at home, but we learn that he's been sick for a while and Derry has been taking care of him. Aw, we <laughs> love him. Um, and as he's recovering, one of the surviving socials, Randy, comes to visit and he tells pony boy that there's a court hearing for the next day but that he'll tell the judge that johnny had been the one to kill the dick head king of the socials which is true but pony boy and i i actually don't get this part at all he tells randy that he killed the social guy yeah. I don't know if he believes it or it's it, like he's fucked up in the head, but I don't quite get it. Yeah, it's it is weird. I, I mean, I talk it, though, is like that he doesn't I, I don't know that like he doesn't want like a murderer to be on the his dead friend. So he wants to take oh, responsibility right. for it. I, but I agree. Like, I, I'm not positive of that. That was just how I tried to make it make sense why he was doing that. 
he's also like feverish and fucked up. So it's like hard for yeah. me to know precisely yes. if he's doing this in the logical sense, which you're describing, which I actually think you're right. But that's why I got confused. Yeah. There's also it certainly was on his behalf. It was done on his behalf. So yeah. Yeah. To save his life. So yeah. I don't know. There are many there are many ways to slice it, but none of them are exactly in the book, but we can make them all work. <laughs> totally. So the next day and they don't they show the scene very very briefly where they go to court and the the actually the big fear is that the state will separate Ponyboy and Soda Pop because they're underage. Mm-hmm. But they don't and it turns out to be okay. But Ponyboy is still like super fucked up in the head and body because this is a ton of trauma. And then Tubit delivers him Johnny's copy of Gone with the Wind, of course, which has a note in it. And it says, uh, in part, I don't mind dying now. It's worth it. It's worth saving those kids. And at the end of the book, Ponyboy is writing down this whole story because he is both school and cool. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the end. Uh, yeah, and it's also a pretty quick. Again, I mean, it's like, wow, like I'm, you know, impressed that a senior in high school wrote that. Like, there's a pretty cl- cool meta yeah. thing that happens, right? Where it's like, oh, the narrative I've been reading, like I've actually been watching it be written already. You know, it's like, whoa, like, and th- I mean, that's, yeah. I, I mean, I was not anywhere near that creative at 17 or any point in my entire life. So, you know, I mean, it is pretty amazing. Like, it does it. You know, reading it again, I was like, "There's some clunk- there's some real clunky shit here," but like, it really is very affecting. I yeah. think, yeah, it really blows your mind when you get to the end and it's the same fucking line as the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It, it does. It it rips. It really it's really good. <laughs> it's really it's, good. It's good. Yeah, and it's also like we'll talk about this later, but I really like that it doesn't end on the sort of like final death that it actually like follows the character through yes. the sort of like PTSD of this. Like a lot of books would just stop. And, yeah. And, and I know we'll talk to this later. I know you're going to give us some, some, uh, some cool stuff on, on YA fiction, but the other thing I really appreciated about this was that it didn't end with like, Oh, and now the socias and the greasers are friends because like they I, learned that they're all the same. It's like, no, like the socias are still fucking assholes. Like the greasers are, still you know poor and you know marginalized in the society that and because i do feel like a lot of ya fiction would do that like ultra clunky thing of like we have to resolve this and everyone can just be friends you know right and it's never gonna be that book yeah uh so the context for this uh is going to be a bit more about ya fiction than about hinton in particular because i think it's a really cool history and again we haven't talked about it very much Essie Hinton is a major writer of YA fiction from what is called the first golden age. And she wrote this book when she was 15 and 16. It was published when she was 17, which is yeah, like yowza. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's still alive. And she has published since then more YA, some children's books, um, and some fiction for grownups too, which I... I have to continually when I when I wrote up the summary not say adult fiction because that sounds like porn. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she yeah she also wrote a sequel to Fanny Hill. Uh, said in, yeah, right. Yeah, said in tweet, right? That, that thing that you tweeted out, Megan, of the 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 uh, the Fanny Hill nineteen sixties porn that was like new and from Sweden. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what she wrote a sequel to New and from Sweden, Fanny Hill. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so with respect to YA 
And I just want to note that a lot of what I'm saying here is from Michael Cart's book, Young Adult Literature from Romance to Realism, it came out in 2016, and I recommend it. The genre is sort of pegged as first emerging in the 1940s. And this is also when the category of the teenager becomes a thing. Childhood is also an in- invention. People talk about that with Victorians a lot. But there are a lot of changes in the way people perceive adolescence. It's also a moment where developmental psychology changes the way we think of adolescence. But the category doesn't really become dominant until the 40s, the Second World War, and just after that, which is changes in the perception of teenagers being about like self-exploration and leisure time and you get a car. Well, some people do a new category of operating in the world. Like most post-war social phenomena, this is kind of like a middle-class perception, but it's not like this developmental stage is not inherently middle-class. And this is something we see in the outsiders, of course. One of the first books of this genre as it begins to get coherent is Maureen Daly's 17th Summer. It's from 1942. And it's a love story between its heroine and her boyfriend. They have to break up at the end of the novel because they're too young to get married. And she looks back poignantly at her 17th summer, blah, blah, blah. And this is a trope that follows YA, which is like a love story that has the tension of sexuality, but that ends chastely. Well, you don't know that. (laughs) Uh, No, but that's certainly the what is what we're directed to think that's what they want you to think (laughs) that's what they want us to think is that there's no finger blasting in the back of a car seat but there definitely is (laughs) well there certainly actually was in 1942 yeah of course there was you think that people in the 40s didn't get horned up about whatever they (laughs) playing a game with a hoop or whatever all around the mulberry bush i don't know eddie grable really I I have watched this uh, the the Seven Hundred Club, and I know that people did not have sex until the nineteen seventies, right? right. <laughs> when when all the the coke fiends got America hepped up on the on the dope. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, anyway, okay. So in the fifties, popular critics started thinking about YA as a genre. Although they're actually like a little mad that it exists. So Cart points to this article from 1955. Um, this is Cart speaking. He says, the point we infer from early criticism is that although there may be by the 1950s have been a separate identifiable body of books to be read by that separate identifiable body of readers, that is young adults, too many of its constituent titles were what one of the reviewers glumly described as slick patterned, rather inconsequential stories written to capitalize on a rapidly expanding market. So that's the end of the quote. And I think that's actually like something we should think about and pay attention to, which is like YA, I think is super cool. It's a very plastic set of genres, but it's also a market. I think that's one of the ways it's set apart from like literature in quotes. But uh, I will also mention that like middle brow critics, the guy who said that, 
seems not to be aware that literature is also fucking market driven. And I will say, like, yeah. the one thing that I do, like, I mean, there's no question, like, if you spend your time, like, immersed in early 19th century criticism and stuff like that, a lot of it is just, you know, the world, the whole view of the world is completely wrong. But the one thing that is slightly refreshing what is that idea that, oh, the, the, mar- like, the, the market should concern, that just doesn't exist. You know what I mean? That's, that is very much like a late 19th century into the 20th century kind of conceit of, like, what became the middle brow critic that there's there's market literature and then there's high literature you know right what I mean? well and the novel we've we've said this again and again but like the novel is a is a creation of a market yeah no i mean you need you need a bourgeoisie and a petty bourgeoisie for it to even make sense as a form right you need you need people with yeah. disposable income and leisure time but you know that yeah and just to basically sit around by themselves and like read this stuff rather than go to a play or whatever you know Right, but it's like convenient to yell at the kids, you know, like the kids are reading this book. Well, that's another thing. There has never been a new media form in the history of humanity that cranky old assholes haven't been like, it's the kids' fault that this is so bad, you know? (laughs) The kids or the ladies or whoever is like a convenient scapegoat. The kids or the ladies, yes, or the the, the, the poor are often also like a target of those. Oh, totally. Most of it. But no, you're right that that's wrong. But Snapchat and YouTube are a plague upon us. And <laughs> that's actually right. So we TikTok, all of it. We're, it's not literature. You know, okay? I didn't I'm, know you hated fun. I do. I'll be over here jacking off to War and Peace if you need me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I only read little magazines, and they come to me in the mail from the tiny press. <laughs> they cost a thousand dollars each, and they're worth it. <sighs> Lovely. Okay, so the genre continues; it begins to sort of pick up speed in the fifties and sixties, but it's not until the mid sixties that it begins to break out of like the familiar tropes about how, like, don't be a gang, it'll get you killed, and never have sex, and don't do drugs, and don't park out at the lake with your boyfriend. Which, don't be cool in any way, shape, or form. Don't be cool or you'll die. Having fun will kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Or, and make you a communist. Oh, there is that whole <laughs> communist thing. <laughs> hey, you two said it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're on a list now. Yeah. We, we already were. <laughs> we already were. So The Outsider is this really one of the first books to do this. Although, you know, sorry for the Foucault break, but... If we're thinking genealogically, and that's what Foucault would say, any genre arrives from multiple points. So it's not like the outsiders could exist just like it nothing arrives like completely in new form. No, the outsiders implies the existence of the insiders. And then you have to do the synthesis <laughs> and you shit out the dialectic. Yes. That's <laughs> yeah. that's not that's not wrong. No, that's a, that's actually a, that's one of the better metaphors of the dialectic I have heard. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The food is the the thesis, the laxative is the antithesis and then mm-hmm. and the butthole is is the synthesis, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All I can think of is plop plop fizz fizz, but I know that's not right. <laughs> no, that's to help your tummy when you have a hangover. Oh, it tastes like shit. It does. That's true. <laughs> okay, so so the Outsiders comes along, nineteen sixty seven, and in a review in the New York Times for something else, Hinton says the world is changing, yet the authors of books for teenagers are still fifteen years behind the times. In the fiction they write. 
romance is still the most popular theme with a horse and the girl who loved it coming in a close second. <laughs> the horse and the girl who fucked it. <laughs> the story of Catherine the Great. <laughs> I love that, though, that she's like, she's got a fart on the girl, the horse and the girl who loved it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, what do we, we leave the horse girl alone. <laughs> no, like, damn, Essie, you're coming hard for a horsey girl. <laughs> Uh, so she says, in these fictions, nowhere is the drive-in social jungle mentioned. In short, where is the reality? Mm. Okay, so the other book that Cart credits with the emergence of the form is Paul Zindel's The Pig Man from 1968. Uh, this is also character-driven as opposed to sort of like, and again, I don't want to knock like romance novels or detective fiction, which is a lot of YA before that, but but it seems important and that's how people mark this emergence. But that book is narrated by two teenagers. We'll talk about this later, but first person is important with the development of teenage narrators. So after this genre really kicks off with those books, with Robert Cormier's The Chocolate War, it's 1974. And then my personal favorite, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, <laughs> which is from 1970. Judy Bloom is worth me giving her a moment all her own she's a hero tristan have you read any judy bloom no or is I she haven't. just is she just a girl <laughs> novels no, no no i'm not being shitty i'm just saying like she's marketed to girls yeah I... so tristan now you can't answer the question <laughs> no there's no it's not a it's not a slight to you and not a slight to her it's just like that's the marketing no that is that is true like and you know what like i felt like i read like more fantasy and shit like that when i was mm -hmm. a ya age but i think that that is probably like gender marketing too i think that like i think so too yeah so did you read the one about the rats that sword fighted? Yes, sword yeah, fought? yeah, yeah. Brian Jakes, that's right. Uh, the Mossflower series, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I haven't read it, but I know exactly. Like, I can, Im I can think of the covers. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, and I guess those are marketed to boys, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah but so, you, so we're gonna do some Judy Bloom on the show because you would love it. She's <laughs> okay. so she's so great. You would just love it. Um, she wrote this book called Forever in 1975. And this is true. Her daughter asked her to write a book where two teenagers have sex and nothing bad happens. Yeah, that, that's the whole. That's, that's, that's the whole great. Plot. Yeah, that's great. And crazy that somebody was like, "There's no book like that." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a moment in that book where the girl, where her grandmother takes her to Planned Parenthood. That, uh, that yes, let's let's read it. It's cool, Grandma. Great, yeah. Judy Bloom is the queen yeah. also still alive so hey so i could go on and on about this needless to say this is this is what we again call the first golden age i'll just mention that the second golden age of ya is in progress uh people call this the sort of post-millennium after 2000 it includes a diversity of voices and genres lots of writers who had previously worked in grown-up fiction like michael shaban write ya novels so literary merit has become a dominant if dumb question about contemporary YA. And the second era again is like this is still happening. Books are being constantly published. YA is very very competitive in the book market. The kids do read, you fucking jerks. Don't <laughs> be mean to the kids. So okay, 
the kids read. So let's let's get into this. Yeah, one thing, I mean, I know one thing that we wanted to talk about was like, what would differentiate a YA book, you know, about teenagers, uh, or, you know, or yeah, a YA book and books, like about teenagers, right? I think Megan, that was that was a question that you wanted to talk about. And so like, I, I just like, I'll kind of come at that stylistically. Um, when I first started reading this, I really kind of hated it for a few chapters, because Aww. I thought so many of the so much of the dialogue was like corny, and just weird given that we're talking about like you know fucking slinging you know switchblades around and murder and stuff like that but the dialogue would be super corny and it would be like golly gee willikers and that kind of shit but then like the more i read the more i was like no we're actually in the mind of like a 14 year old boy right and we're like experienced the reality through that and so that that, that's why a lot of the language would be that as well and so i like a a really clear example of this i think is like this is chapter seven this is like after they've gotten back from the church fire and 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 uh, pony boys at home and he's making breakfast the brothers are still asleep dairy was still asleep when i went to the, in, into the kitchen to fix breakfast the first one up has to fix breakfast and the other two to do the dishes that's the rule around our house and usually it's dairy who fixes breakfast and me and soda who are left with the dishes i hunted through the ice box and found some eggs we all like our eggs done differently i like them hard dairy likes them in uh, bacon and tomato sandwich and soda pop eats his with grape jelly all three of us like chocolate cake for breakfast mom had never allowed it with ham and eggs but dairy let soda and me talk him into it we really didn't have to twist his arm dairy loves chocolate cake as much as we do soda pop always makes sure there's some in the ice box every night and if it isn't uh, he cooks one up real quick i like dairy's cakes better soda pop always puts too much sugar in the icing i don't see how he could stand jelly and eggs and chocolate cake all at once but he seems to like it dairy drinks black coffee and soda pop and i drink chocolate milk we could have coffee if we wanted it, but we like chocolate milk. All three of us are crazy about chocolate stuff. Soda says if they ever made a chocolate cigarette, I'll have it made. And it's like, that is so like, in some way, heartbreaking, right? Because it's like, yeah. they've just, they're it's like, a kid. It's a kid. And it's just like his best friend has just murdered someone. They've been like hiding out in a church for us. There's about to be this massive like gang fight in their backyard. And like, what he's, but, but that's like, I mean, I could see a 14 year old's brain like working that way. It's like, oh, like, I, you know, I, I mean, maybe it's like an escape or maybe just because like that's kids make weird, well, kids from an adult perspective make weird associations and so like i stopped hating that stuff it was like no this is actually kind of like a brilliant sort of stylistic device that like does sort of put you into like a 14 year old psychology rather than like a description of like a 14 year old in these kind of circumstances yeah i mean and he's like she's constantly pulling back and forth on like whether he's vulnerable or really up to the sort of the reality that he's living in, right? Like we know that he's really resilient, but I think he's also like extraordinarily vulnerable yeah. person. Yeah. And so like part of this like jostling from one thing to another is about like, he totally can't handle this. This is no. not something that is anything having to do with any decision he's ever made. So we see moments that are like, oh, if he had decisions to be made, they would be about fucking cake. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And 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 also like I yeah, yeah, totally. So he he both can and can't handle this, right? Like I mean he's like preternaturally mature, 
but also a 14 year old definitely throughout. And, um, and, and also, but I could read, I could also imagine like a 14 year old reading this and like, Oh, like he, you know, like really into the fact that they all eat chocolate cake for if breakfast. My parents you know? died. I would eat yeah. chocolate cake every day. Yeah. No, yeah. dude, dead, dead. Seriously. All we fucking did was get sheet cakes after my dad died. Like yeah. we just had 20,000 sheet cakes in the house. All we were like, tw- we were in our twenties, Yeah, but it was for sheet breakfast? cakes. Oh, it was all day. We just had a we had a we had multiple sheet cakes in the house at one time. Yeah. So this is like a this is a this is a post traumatic uh trope is just cake all the time. I sort of actually think that that's part. I mean, the sugar rush of this particular passage is definitely a kid thing, but you can also see it as that's a way to get through the fucking day. Totally. Like, you just shove cake and cigarettes in your face and like butt chug chocolate milk and try not to feel the pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, uh, yeah, no, ab- definitely. And also it's funny too because like he loves like chocolate cake, but he also is like a cha- like, <laughs> chain smoking at 14. Like there's this one scene yeah. where where, where uh, Derry's like, if you smoke more than one pack today, I'll kick your ass. Like, and, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think there's a guy, yeah, like when he's waiting for Johnny at the hospital, like Pony Boys. Oh, this is like smoke. my favorite moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, you tell and, it. And, the, and, and, and like the guy, I think it's one of the guys for the church fires like you shouldn't be smoking if only push is like why and he's like because you're 14 <laughs> you <know? laughs> and he's like oh i never thought of that because like everybody smokes yeah 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 and, which i think that i mean i think that 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 says something about like his you know class well probably like class position but also like the absence of the parent from his life you know so he's like again like preternaturally mature but also very clearly a 14 year old well he says that it's he basically says it's a class thing that he says everyone in our neighborhood smoked yes yeah and i mean it's 1967 so like i you know i don't know what maybe 80 percent of the country smoked but like being 14 it it is three years after the surgeon general's warning i think but yeah No, I mean, like, everybody was shoving talcum powder up their ass and all manner of (laughs) undesirable things. But, okay, so the cigarettes, definitely it's, like, all of the above, right? But it's there's also this thing that happens where he's freaking out. They're in the church, and he smokes so many cigarettes at once that he just barfs every – or does he barf? Yes, he barfs. Yeah. Yeah. So he knows that cigarettes calm him down, but he doesn't quite understand how to man. It, it seems like a kid thing to smoke so much he puke. Yeah. It's like when also Tristan sh- ate a whole bag of um, Sour Patch Kids and puked. I, had, I, I one, you're talking about like three months ago, and two. And two. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm like, we all have it in us. And two, I have never actually puked. I just had to curl up in my bed holding my stomach. <laughs> so you were too chicken to to yeah. take the rumble all the way. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I, I've. I don't smoke anymore, but I used to. And I'm not sure if I ever smoked enough to puke. I think you really have to smoke chain smoke. I never could. If I like back and I I haven't smoked in almost 20 years, but back when I did, if I had more than half a pack of cigarettes in a day, I just felt horrible. Like I could never do it, but I'm, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, 
I think it is that everybody in this book smokes, but also that it's like, oh, that is their anti-anxiety medication. Yeah, 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 totally, yes. totally. Right, like nicotine is their Xanax. No, di- nicotine cigarettes are a effective yeah. anti-anxiety medication. You shouldn't do it, but I get. I'm not. I would never yell at somebody for smoking. And you know what? What I uh, when I watch like old movies and stuff when everyone's smoking that I, I miss. It's like, God damn it! It gave you something to do with your fucking hands, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. in a social situation. It just it took- also gave you an excuse to take a break. Like yeah. if you're tired of these people, you could leave for ten minutes. Yeah. It also allows a respite from the unceasing concern about whoa, do I have bo? Does my breath smell? No, everything smells like fucking shit and smoke. I don't feel <laughs> worried. Right. Yeah, but it's me. That's yeah. true. Um, so like then what I, I totally agree. I think that the dialogue and not the dialogue, but the interior monologue initially feels clunky. And then when you realize that it's doing this version of like interiority that then becomes compelling. So what the fuck distinguishes this from a book about teenagers? And this is like a line, right? Like this is a line that people draw, even though like that was a line that people made nobody thought in the 50s that catcher in the rye was a ya novel Mm -hmm. right even though like dude that book uh, we should i don't know (laughs) we should dunk on that book sometime on the pod um i would i would nothing would give me greater pleasure than to dunk on catcher in the rye for 90 minutes (laughs) i mean i agree but i'm just saying that like that's one and then and i find it like we keep I keep bringing up, like, what do people teach and teach to high schoolers? And that's one because I was a teenager in it. And then another one is the fucking Lord of the Flies. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that a YA? But like, isn't that is that not YA? No. I mean, again, I think that the, this distinction for me is beginning to fall apart. Yeah. But it's not. It's in that sort of like post. It's in the it's in the dystopian vein of that British fiction from that moment that includes stuff like Brave New World. Um, Meg, let me take your historicization of YA and take it way back um, to like a, to, <laughs> to a very different time, which is that like like so yeah right. I mean, in your what you said, and I think we've talked about it on the show before about how the teenager emerges as the distinct category in the first half of the twentieth century for all these specific historical reasons. Um, so if I take it back, if I compare the, that idea to like eighteenth the eighteenth century novel, for instance, like I can like really crystal clear see what you're talking about. Because like, okay, so like Pamela, right? Famously, Pamela, who is like the object of desire for this 450 page novel by Samuel Richardson is 15 fucking years old. Um, And we've talked about like how that's not that even at the time, that's not considered cool. But I do think it's like, you know, you're in an era when basically it's like there, there's like no transitional period between childhood and adulthood. And even children themselves, like in the 18th century, and I think well into the 19th century are kind of thought of as miniature adults right like legally and everything else you know and and so like yeah i mean so i I, that was one thing that i was thinking about like just comparing this to like the novel the history of the novel more broadly i mean in this like katie if you don't want to talk about this that's i totally get it but isn't this like a 18th century u.s puritan notion like they have a problem with kids did you say Puritan think I didn't want to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to cue you and have you be like, no, not today. Oh, no. Katie's our belt buckle hat <laughs> consultant. <laughs> <I'll try. laughs> yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> and I charge exorbitant fees. Yeah, no, like, they did all manner of fucked up shit with kids. Like, they would put them in these weird little cage-type dresses to stand them up because they thought the kids were closer to original sin. So it's, like, even more than the, like, oh, kids are great because their tiny hands can fit in all the factory machinery. Isn't that yeah. neat? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> there was even this sense that kids were not closer to God. They were closer to original sin. All of these different shifts are inventions in a way. None of it is natural i mean even what we think how we think about kids today is like who fuck who knows how we'll think about children in 100 years if there are if there are people left right anywhere. yeah well, it's just really interesting to think about like the the many different kinds of institutions that weigh in on this at least for me right yeah. so like developmental psychology is a huge part of this which is like really takes off in the early 20th century after psychoanalysis so it's like it's not wrong it's just a different set of institutions that are invested as opposed to like religion which is what you're talking about yeah i also too and again i mean I, this is pure speculation on my part since i'm not like a historian by any means of this period megan you know far more about this than i would but like i wonder if even to the like w when you date this to the 1940s if like the experience of world war ii didn't have something to do with it you know a bunch of 18 19 year old kids mm -hmm. dying by the hundreds of thousands of millions and just so like yeah. at some level a cultural desire to like insulate like childhood or even the self from that like to, to like to open yeah. up this this like space of suspension where you're not quite brought into that and, and then also you know i mean uh capital too right like i mean you know the, right. like, the, 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 the child factory workers like no wait like let's before we like do that like let, let's have some period of your life when you're not just part of being ground down by like the the, the system you know well, and the the sort of like i i think you're almost certainly right but but what's what's pegged as the master narrative is that after the war, because the U.S. is like <laughs> doing better, I guess, than like the rest of the guys. No, we didn't. We didn't. Our our, our cities weren't carpet bombed into oblivion. <laughs> right. That's that's kind of what I'm saying. Is that like with a bigger middle class that the category of the teenager gets invented because people go to school for longer, mm -hmm. they finish high school more often, yeah. but also that they have this period where they like. They don't have to, they don't, they're not, they're neither like full dependent like children are perceived to be, but nor are they like adults. Yeah. And, 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 and probably also pair that with the experience coming off of the depression too, right? Where it's yeah. like, if, if there was work to be had, everyone in a family had to do it, right? Like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's really thought of again as like completely an economic, in part, not completely, but to a big degree, an economic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So a thing that this book does that I think that I actually fully love is that like there's no grownups. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like his parents get killed off uh, way before the book starts. And then like occasionally we learn that a character like lives with their parents. But I, I'm interested in like this is an adult free space that is not Lord of the Flies. Right. So Lord of the Flies is like it's doing this allegorical thing because the kids actually stand in for adults. And the reason that they're kids is because that's like a way that we can construct them as representative in some way. But that's not happening here. No, I think just to because the parents dying is a thing that facilitates the the kids only zone. Yeah. 
there's something about the way the parents okay so this is the thing that i did not remember that blew my dick off when we read this which was that they they're actually their their actual names are soda pop mm-hmm. and uh pony boy oh yeah they're not He's nicknames. Like, it's, he says it twice that it's on his birth certificate yes so you have to think what you hear, the only trace of the parent, because he's like, yeah, my dad named me fucking Pony Boy or whatever. He says it outright. Guess he named him Soda Bach. Oh, you haven't met my brother snap into a Slim Jim. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have. So in a way, the parents are absent, but they're the remnant of them is just the most kid thing, mm-hmm. oh, which is yeah. all the nicknames. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, like, what's up with that? I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, right. And like, because, like, so 2-Bit Matthews, who I, I was like, wait, are we good fellas, right? <laughs> we're going like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, like, like he, that's a nickname that he's gotten, uh, you know, from the gag. But, like, uh, yeah, like, Soda Pop and Pony Boy sound like it would be the same thing, but it's not. It's pair. So, right. It's like, they're almost, like, never, they're ne- at least, like, as far, as far as the Curtis boys are concerned, there never was the kind of classic form of adult oh. authority, which that's interesting where we do see it in uh it's very dark right it's it's johnny cade's family where i mean that's like that, the, the the presence of adults in the neighborhood is like alcoholism and abuse yeah. right like um, i mean i didn't yeah. include it in the summary but there's a scene that actually like fucking kills me which is that johnny is in the hospital dying and his mother comes to see him and he says i don't want to see her yeah 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 um yeah, and and and, and we, which you understand why, like from the narrative, and but it's right, yeah, she it's beats the shit. His both yeah. his parents beat the shit out of him. Yeah, and like so, Derry's twenty, so he's yeah, you know, he's an adult, like yeah. you know, but um, well, I mean, yeah, but like, uh, but he has really, to be a yeah. big adult, you know, he has to yeah. be like the dad, yeah, and. He has to work two jobs and whatever. Yeah, and and so he so he's had his own sort of like end of childhood interrupted by this authority that he's had to take on. But he's also like, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, let's eat chocolate cake for breakfast. And also, like, he's going to be in the same fight, which is like, you know, it it feels like a schoolyard fight, except like people have been murdered in this in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going to be out there basically fighting with the rest of us. So like, in some way, like there's no there's no like social distinction other than like, Derry's like the leader, but from like Pony Boy and Derry, right? They're doing the same social shit. They're like, they're part of the same, they're hanging out, they're fighting together, you know, it, which is very, it, yeah, it's and and I do wonder like if it's, if that is supposed to be like class inflected at all, or if it's just imagining a space you know, without like, without the adult. Oh, I mean, I think the answer is both, but I think it has to be class inflected here, inflected because the socials are constantly talking about like, oh, my dad will kill me or like, I can't do this because my dad or what, you know what I'm saying? So like, they are operating according to like, they have a very different, I mean, in every way they have a different social code, but the most important to me is that their social code is not to each other. And for the, for the, the greasers, they're not actually a gang. He goes out of his way to say this. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're a group of buddies. Yeah. Their social codes are to each other. Yeah. And so the right. socials like, don't cherry does not really care for her own boyfriend. So, right. right yeah. So they don't have these, like they don't have these bonds in that the, it's not a family of teenagers. Whereas for, for the, when we read the outsiders, it's like, this is a, this is a family. 
It it is. I don't think it's true that she doesn't care about the boyfriend, but like her her like I don't know what you can say. Her attraction to to the boyfriend who's named like Bill or something. Bob. I think um, Bob Sheldon. Bob. Yeah. Bob Sheldon. That's a dickhead yeah. name. Uh, <laughs> she's she's also attracted to Dally in this way. That's like yeah, I, I would go nuts for this dude if it weren't for I don't know fact that he's. It's got long hair or something. Um, and it's like kind of a psycho. I mean, like, we, I, yeah. I love him, but he also is like, you know, he really fucks with those girls for no reason. And we know he like jumps people, and there's a scene where he like, like mugs these little kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, okay, that's also like, it, the way that's described in the book is like, he did cool things like rob children. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is really fucking funny. But I think that. There's a difference, though, between – so there's a huge difference between the boys and the girls. Oh, sure. Th- that's – because Ch- Cherry is supposed to be – she does – she has this teeny little speech about why she won't see Johnny in the hospital or whatever. And part of it has to do with the fact that the boyfriend, she sees something like Dally and the boyfriend. Like, they're both they're both different to her in some way. Mm. And so, like, she's attracted and excited by both of them in this way that, like, the boys couldn't really be. I mean, they talk about – they talk about liking, um, you know, fancy, fancy girls or what, like Pony Boy talks about wanting to date a fancy lady, sort of. Yes. Thir- he's 13. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so here's my question, I guess. So we have these, these bonds between the greasers and everything, but we also have this insistence by Pony Boy. I think it's twice. He says, if it weren't for us, Derry would have been a social. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So what's with so is it just about your like what is that then he perfectly obeys all the codes but yet he is somehow not supposed to be one of them he obeys the codes differently though we know he doesn't smoke that's another thing he goes out of his way I know mm-hmm. that I'm making like a lot I'm kind of making hay of this but I think it matters and yeah, yeah. um you know he, we know he was a football player in high school but that's there's a lot going on there. A lot, right? It's a it's a class mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a care thing, right? Like he has to be a dad. He doesn't have any. He doesn't have any leisure time. He's not a teenager in that sense. I also right. don't know that I believe the line. Like I don't know that we're necessarily meant to believe the line. In that, like the the sort of the class spaces seem so ironclad, right? It's not like oh, this is mainly a greaser neighborhood, but like a socialist down the block. It's not like it's, there's two sides of town, right? So I'm like, right. I mean, I, I I read that more. Or is I mean, well, I was like, oh, okay, I said, well, that's kind of interesting. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, that feels more like kind of Pony Boy's slight, somewhat misplaced guilt that he's like holding Derry back in a way. And I guess, like, I mean, because Derry's had to take on this responsibility, uh, you know, and it's not Pony Boy's fault, of course, but like, but I think it is more like Woody, though, like, yeah. And I mean, like, we see that, yeah. like, oh, he used to be friends with this football player's associate, but like, I feel more that the sense of the novel is that, like, right, but that was like maybe when they're like small kids that's possible but not in the like broader social world like you get to a certain can you change sides yeah Yeah, exactly i really thought that there's something to the fact of like people want to they're they're they all think he's like hot or whatever you know Mm -hmm. like that happens all the time the like somebody will be a cool sports person and have like a fucked up home life and they and they run around with the whatever fancy kids. Like, is this a real? Is this a thing? That, have I just watched too many teen television shows? Like, I don't know that. I don't know how strong the divisions are supposed to be. I know they wind up that way, but 
And I know that that I just don't know how much of that is how neat the dividing lines are in the book. I hear you, and I and that seems right. Um, and 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 I yeah, like uh, you know, I do think his you know, like yeah, his his, his looks is he's supposed to be very smart. Um, you know, something that likes ability or something could like transcend these barriers. But again, I think what I come back to is that like it's this is not a narrative where Socias wind up friends with the greasers because we all learned we're the same after all. Right. Like that, it does. There's not that which which I think is a common feature of a lot of like. Um, you know, fiction for for teenagers, right? Like, because it's it, the message is about like kind of transcending those sort of like social boundaries. I don't think the novel really thinks that that can happen, though. I mean, I think that it's. I, I'll just like throw another variable in here, which is that like, I don't think that the the book. I think Pony Boy just imagines that, but I don't think the book can actually like find that space for mm. him outside of being a parent because like pony boy is not pony boy would be fucked up without dairy like he's fucked up enough now yeah. but like somebody is making him go to school and like yeah. feeding him chocolate cake in the morning or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. like he has to do this not out of obligation he doesn't actually do it purely out of obligation i think pony boy thinks he does yeah i uh, doesn't he do it i mean it's he probably doesn't do it purely out of obligation, but you can't really fairly untangle the two if you're a 20-year-old who's lost their parents and then they're stuck with all their brothers. Yeah. I mean, there's right. no clear dividing line between what he wants to do and what he feels obligated to do. No, I agree with that entirely. That's why I say, though, that like the book can't imagine this third thing because it's like he he does this out of obligation, but he does it out of love, too. Right. Yes. I. I think that's, and here's my secret that I'll tell you both is that I read this article in the t- uh, fucking in the fucking this is about Riverdale. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, uh, and it and it really like knocked my block off because it was an interview with Essie Hinton, and um, at the end she basically says like the the book is supposed to be about, or she says like the message is why can't we all just get along? And it like fucked my brain oh. up. She yeah, misread yeah, like, her own. Book. Yeah, don't 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 ever listen to an author about what their books mean. You know? like, no, I, I mean I know that's like a real booby trap for a booby such as myself. No, it's I think yeah. that it's in the book. Like it's in the book though, and that's the thing that like to reckon with it as though it is a straightforward story about it's like a whatever about the good and evil and the battle between the two things it doesn't strike me as as what i felt like it's me- it's so messy yeah in, in a good way yeah no that is yeah that that that's interesting i, I want to read i want to read that uh that now um and can i sorry can i like throw one like other wrinkle in, into this that we've sort of danced around um but like i guess the one thing that the one force that does cut across spaces here is like masculinity right like that the social boys and the greaser boys they all operate under this code of violence right like that has but has rules it's like they agree it's a skin rumble so there are no weapons and anyway but also like so there is so much fucking crying in this book though and i don't say that to diminish it at all or like to dissociate masculinity and crying i'm just saying that like that's a melodrama thing and also like mm-hmm. i'm not making that claim but lots of we 
we know that there's this this notion that like boys don't cry. Yeah. No, no, no. And and it is yeah. it's also it is like as, as you guys have said, mm-hmm. it is an intensely uh it is an intensely homosocial novel. Um and 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 all and we're like, you know, like yeah, like design I mean it's not and it doesn't it doesn't go um far into this but i mean yeah like there is like some sort of desire there that, that's happening mm-hmm. as well right I, so yeah so i mean i i don't think it just i i certainly don't think it just accepts like this very dumb sort of heteronormative version of what masculinity is but it is also like notable to be like the entire i don't other than like johnny kate's mother I don't think there are any girls on the entire east side of Tulsa, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, like, Soda has a girlfriend and he wants to marry her, but then she, like, has to cut and run. Yeah, we never beat her. She's yeah. his girlfriend from Canada, who you haven't met, but he has pictures right. of, right? Like, <laughs> she goes to another school. He's very dishy, so we assume that the women are, like, busting his door down. But you're right. Like, that's something that both cuts across, right? And that also, like, we just don't see from the socias the version of masculinity that we respond to as readers. And I would suggest that that's like mm-hmm. where the this book is like, this is a book for boys and a book for girls. Mm-hmm. This is not yes. a narrowly marketed. This is not, I don't think it's Judy Bloom's fault that they marketed her book to girls. I think she's not that, but like this is not marketed in that way. It's very much a book that like, girls read yeah i'm yeah, not no, an exception yeah. here and i and i think that that's one another thing that's really cool about it is it does it it does not appear to envision a like strictly gendered readership and really kind of wants to like you're saying like oh cut across you know right and it wants to imagine its masculinity is in a way that's like really tender mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah. i think right like so so uh, you know, perfectly understandably when Johnny and uh, Pony Boy are in this church and they're like, they're so fucked up because he's just killed somebody. And this like, this never goes away, right? The book doesn't say like, oh, he killed somebody. And now it's like, doesn't matter very much. But he like holds him and he falls asleep. And it's like an incredibly tender moment. Yeah. And doesn't, yes. right. And Soda, uh, Soda Pop starts uh, sleeping with him because he has the the nightmares, right? right he has his night terrors. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the night terrors after the parents die. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Yeah, no, it is tender and, and right, and, and and even like I don't know, like the violence in it is both like shocking, like you know, like a four, you know, a, like kids murdering each other. But there's there is also like this weird connection of it. Right? I mean, I get that, that like the skin rubble, mm-hmm. which which does have that. Like, I mean, it has that like inescapably like erotic undertone to it. But it's al- so funny. But also, yes. it's like I'm going to resolve this by getting into close contact. You know, we're really going to like wrestle it out. Like it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay. and there's there's also a lot of like ferocious hugging yes you know or not not a loving angry hugging yes and there's that great part in the when um he so so to fuck i these names pony boy runs into his brother dairy at the hospital and he starts to cry and uh he hugs him he gives him like a really hard hug and he says he hears his heartbeat under his t-shirt yeah like that's how he knows i know it's so like it's so it's like high it's really it's like very affecting and touching and like all of it is and it's all this like these moments of like bro come on bro like bro i didn't think you were gonna make it bro bro and then they like hug and it's cute yeah yeah it's like it's the bonds are very sweet and i think that that i mean like that's not the thing that distinction distinguishes them purely from the socialists but it is something like that we don't 
for me, the social order that dairy can't fit into is like, we can look at it a lot of ways, but like one of them is that it doesn't, we don't, we see affection among the socials, but we don't see like family and tenderness in this. this That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. Uh, Katie, uh, let's have a game. Are we going to cry and are we going to cry and knife each other in this game? That is the game, actually. We're gonna do knife fighting. <laughs> we're yeah. gonna have a skin. We're gonna have a skin rumble where we punch each other in the face, and it's gonna be great. No, we're not gonna do and that. And then change uh, scenes by passing out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's actually how we're gonna transition from different parts of the podcast from now on. So when we go from the summary to the discussion, what we're gonna do is just we're all gonna we're all gonna just suck down a bunch of um, you know we're gonna just suck on a tailpipe of a car. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. We're going to do the Vulcan. <laughs> What's the thing, Tristan? The uh, the Vulcan, uh, the the death grip. Is that what you're talking about? The yeah, yeah. yeah so exactly. what makes you pass out? Is it the nerve pinch? Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the death grip. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So give it to us. Give us a game. It'll be a game. Yes. So since we've read some young adult, uh, we've read some young adult fiction here today. I am going to ask you: Is we got we have a real? We're going to keep it short and sweet today. I have three questions. You you better know YA. So I'm going to give you some events that happen in three YA series, and you're going to tell me which of the thing is which one of the choices that I give you is actually the ridiculous thing that happened. Cool. This young adult. Okay. okay. So our first comes from the Notebook comes from the notebook okay okay so according to this we're gonna call this we're gonna call this ya because even though it's not that's wrong of me but genre is a mystery and uh it's there are the lines are blurry anyway yeah (laughs) yes exactly much like childhood okay so how how should one if you're thinking from the perspective of a notebook go about getting someone to agree to go on a date with you so you know a sexy lady and you'd like to ask her out what do you do a you dangle off of a ferris wheel like sylvester stallone in cliffhanger insisting that um that she sort of go on a date with you or you're gonna i don't know what scuttle up a rock face Mm. like dracula Mm -hmm. yeah exactly Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you B, punch her boyfriend in the gonads? <laughs> or <laughs> or C, do you impress her by laying down in traffic? Just laying down in traffic. It's yeah. A. I've seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you have an un- un- unfair advantage there. Um, although that, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, generally threatening self-harm is a, is a good and not at all psychotic or abusive way of <laughs> engaging sure. with people, right? Um, I right. mean, I so I, that's, I'll take the wrong answer there and say punch your boyfriend at the gonads because, you know, that sounds cool to me. I mean, I would, I would go out with someone who did that. But. <laughs> there's, a di- there's a difference between the right answer and the correct answer, and that's how you're both going to win. <laughs> <laughs> so I this is like okay, just let me have my moment here. But that you know that movie is directed by Nick Cassavetes, right? What? What? The, no. the, the yeah. <laughs> what? To which what? I to which I and Jenna Rollins, of course, is his mother. <laughs> and to this, I can only say, "Oh, John Cassavetes, what <laughs> hath thy spawn wrought?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man well oh, no, not, bad. not the only fail spot in hollywood 
Hardly. There's, you know, no. Charlie Sheen and, uh, <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Isn't Nicolas Cage a Coppola? But, he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nicolas Cage fucking rules. Don't even go down that path. Well, and also, I mean, fail. Like, as, as Charlie Sheen would say, he's, a, he, he's the one who's winning, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Nicolas Cage is the remarkable actor who is both a huge success and a huge failure. Yeah. Yes. Ex- yeah. No, that's How true. How does yeah, he yeah, do that's it? That's true. Yeah. Uh, he's broke. Sometimes you got to make good choices and sometimes you make bad ones. Yeah. He, like, he spent uh, all of his money. <laughs> like, but anyway okay so we got let's the what's number two i hope i haven't read this book or seen this movie ya it's having a baby folks it's having a baby it's in twilight Mm. how does the baby get born in twilight oh man i know this one too okay go ahead oh shit okay (laughs) okay a you gnaw the baby out of the lady like you're trying to win a a contest at buffalo wild wings (laughs) Um, <laughs> B, you remove all of the blood from her, lift the baby out of her desiccated form, and then do a quick, quick transfusion with vampire blood, which if you haven't seen Twilight, is actually glitter glue. Um, <laughs> and then bada bing, bada boom, you're good as new. You drive off the lot in a brand new vampire wife. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or C, you have a baby by taking it indoors uh, when someone has left a sort of baby Count Dracula in a bassinet on your doorstep. Um, and then you bring it in the house and vow to raise it as your own. But unfortunately, it kills everyone. Oh, no. Well, Tristan, so, you have to go first. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I yes. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say you have to eat, vampire babies have to be born by by uh, eating the 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 vampire mom right that's true yeah you yeah. have to chew it out of her you have to chew it out of her yeah that that yeah. sounds right uh, it is right <laughs> it is yeah it is wait no I <laughs> I picked he- what I thought was the stupidest one. It is the <laughs> stupidest one. <laughs> yep, okay, all right. you're correct. This is happens in the book and. I haven't read the book, but I've seen the movie. And because he fucks her to death. Mm. Okay. You he, know. He has to chew he has to chew the baby out of the of out of a stony hard uterus because vampire blood makes your uterus very hard. Oh, okay, right. That yeah. Well, that that yeah, that, that that makes sense. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We've all found that out from one time or another. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you picked the one that you were like, it can't be this. It is. Yeah. I, I mean, I should, and also I've seen the, <laughs> Katie made us watch the vampire baseball clip, which I say made, it was delightful, but like having <laughs> watched that, I should have known it's going to be the stupidest one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I tried mightily and I couldn't think of anything stupider. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's amazingly so, stupid. It's just incredible. Uh, and he, so here's your final question. Okay. So this comes from Gossip Girl. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. And this is just a re- very specific question. I haven't okay. seen Gossip Girl. So now I don't feel like quite as much of a loser that I've consumed all this media. So this is the question of the hour. Okay. So there's the subplot. In where the wrong side of the tracks is a Brooklyn loft, uh, but we'll let that we'll let that stand. And we also don't have time to get into this whole thing. But there's a character on the show who fakes his own death, and then his son Chuck Bass becomes a hotel 
hotel mogul with inexplicably mature sexual proclivities for a 17-year-old business tycoon. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, why does his father Bart Bass fake his own death? A is he gets involved in illegal oil dealing. And his plan to cover up the nefarious act uh, by pretending to have spent $1 million on a thoroughbred named Lady Alexander <laughs> unfortunately fails. Mm. So he is unable to race or fuck it. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. B. Bart Bass falls in love with his business partner's wife. The business partner, husband finds out and burns down a building containing his two-timing spouse and frames the innocent but still bad man. Okay. Or C. A car crash meant to kill him is orchestrated by his business enemies. When Bart Bass <laughs> comes to in the hospital, he realizes that he is in mighty hot water and he bribes a doctor to say that he fucking died and then escapes <laughs> with the assistance of the hilariously named Diana Payne. Uh, I, I think I'm going to go with the horsey one. Yeah, I thank you, because I was also going to go with the horsey one, although the last one sounds like um left behind. Yeah, it does sound a little like left behind. Yeah. Okay, so I hear that you're. I'm gonna. I hear that you were starting to get seduced by A, but I'm giving you C so that you both have perfect scores. Okay. Okay. Right. So. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> he escapes by welcome. bribing the doctor. He escapes by bribing the doctor, but I'll say this: the horse subplot is actually a real subplot, and his son believes the horse to be a woman for a multi-episode arc <laughs> named Lady Alexandra. La- lady, lady, Ale- lady, Alexander, Bo, Bo, <laughs> Bo, lady, horse girl, right. <laughs> <laughs> the horse who loved her, the horse, the girl who loved a horsey. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. And Gossip Girl really does tell you. The- Gossip Girl is as if it is written from the perspective of the socius, and you really find out that they do suck shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm right. I'm already convinced. So, yeah, we are already on the <laughs> social suck shit side. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we can really put a we can really put a bow on that and just kind of that settles the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're the best. So, <laughs> thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. This has been better red than dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BetterEdPod. And email us at BetterEdPodcast at gmail.com, but only if you want to tell us your favorite YA novel, which really we want to know, but not the one about the wizard. Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review us and subscribe. And next week we will have the dispossessed. And then we have a quick season wrap up episode before we take a short break. And we have some really cool shit on the docket for next season. So thanks comrades. You will see that place in time. So go. Away into that way back when.
You thought that all would last forever But like the weather Nothing can ever And be in time Stay gold But can it be When we can see So vividly a memory and yes you say 